0: Welcome to Central Valley Physicians Podcast. Today, I'm here with Marina Reitman, Doctor Marina Reitman. She is um, a specialist in hepatology, and we're going to talk about your liver a little bit, which is a topic that is fascinating. I know very little about. Um, so, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Um, okay, so let's just start with with some of the you know the terms and the the different diagnoses that I hear out there a lot. Um, Or actually, let's back up. Let's start. What are some of the more common causes of liver disease that you are seeing in the Central Valley?
1: Absolutely. So um, I think we maybe back up even a little bit further and just talk about what is the liver and what does the liver do? Why is that important? So the liver is an organ that is located under the right rib cage. It's about the size of the football. And uh, we only have one of those, unlike two kidneys. And uh, what the liver has many important functions. We can kind of break it down into two categories. One important function of the liver is remove the waste or the toxic products that our bodies make. Everybody's bodies do that, and we need to get rid of it. So both the liver and the kidneys help with that. The other function of the liver is to make stuff liver makes certain proteins that are very important for our daily life. For example, it makes a protein that helps our blood to coagulate or stick together so, to prevent us from bleeding. So the cleaning and the making of certain proteins is the main functions of the liver. Now, in terms of what can go wrong with the liver there's a a plethora of things that can go wrong with the liver. And the three things that I see most commonly here in Fresno are uh, hepatitis C, uh, hepatitis B, um, alcoholic liver disease, and fatty liver disease. Well, I accidentally made it four (laughs) instead of three. So hepatitis B and hepatitis C are both viral infections of the liver, So it's a virus that infects the liver and causes problems. With uh, both of those conditions can be asymptomatic. In other words, uh, with both of those, patients can have no symptoms for months, years, and even decades while the virus is in the liver causing damage. So oftentimes the patients present um, to a hepatologist, with advanced symptoms such as uh, yellowness of the eyes, of the skin, accumulation of the fluid of the abdomen, mental confusion, um, and we diagnose them with viral hepatitis, uh, and it turns out that they've had it for 20 years. We just weren't aware of it. Uh, the other condition that I'm going to talk about is uh, um, alcohol, alcoholic liver disease. The um, alcohol is uh, a toxin to the liver so the more alcohol we consume the more damage um, the liver sustains the it's very difficult to say what is the safe amount of alcohol consumption you know the kind of the the numbers that we throw around is uh, perhaps uh, two to three drinks um, uh, a day for a man and maybe one to two drinks for a woman however the Um, there's a lot of variability between the people. Somebody may drink into their 90s and nothing happens. However, somebody may drink fairly heavily, you know, starting at the age of 12 or 13, which is not uncommon in patients that I see, and develop severe liver disease and liver cirrhosis in their mid-20s. So, the amount of alcohol doesn't always necessarily correlate to how much liver damage a person can sustain. The good news about um, alcoholic liver disease is uh, in folks who stop drinking, the liver can regenerate. The liver is the only organ in the body that can do that, so it's a remarkable thing. Of We oftentimes see patients in the hospital, again, with advanced symptoms of liver disease, like I said, yellowness of the eyes of skin, ascites, uh, confusion, and uh, then they stop drinking. I follow them in clinic. And several months later, they have returned to essentially normal. So I always want to tell people, alcoholic liver disease, this is not the end. You know, this is fixable as long as we adhere to complete abstinence. And uh, the last thing I want to talk about, you know, generally speaking, is something called fatty liver disease. Fatty liver disease doesn't sound that serious. A lot of patients kind of is like, oh, yeah, your doctor told me I have fatty liver disease. But it is as serious as viral hepatitis and as alcoholic liver disease. What happens is when we are overweight, when we eat unhealthy, when we don't exercise, and when we have uh, what's called metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hypertension, um, high cholesterol, all of this causes our liver to literally gain fat. So the liver enlarges and becomes fatty. This enlargement and uh, fat in the liver can be as damaging to the liver as virus, as viral hepatitis, or as alcohol. So this fatty liver disease is actually predicted to be the most common liver disease uh, in the United States and in uh, most of the developed develop world, less, in the net, less than in the next decade. So this is really an emerging epidemic that we are not currently paying full attention and we should pay attention.
0: I have a lot of questions.
1: (laughs) I'm here to answer them. That's fascinating
0: too because I didn't realize there was just so many different issues you could have with with what now I'm realizing is a very important organ of your body. So let's talk about the hepatitis um, C and B. You say viral infection. So viral is something that you... Catch correct. So how does how would one catch catch these, either the B or the C, Mm -hmm. and or how do you avoid catching?
1: That's a really great question. So we're going to focus a little bit uh, first on the hepatitis C. So in order to get hepatitis C, the vast majority of the cases come from a blood-to-blood transfusion. In other words, your blood needs to be in direct contact with a patient who has hepatitis C. So one of the most common examples is intravenous drug use, right? This is your blood-to-blood connection when we're sharing needles. The other one that we don't commonly realize is patients who use intranasal cocaine, also known as snorting cocaine. Uh, Patients share certain equipment, such as glass tubes for snorting cocaine, and that, again, you know, gives you the um, blood-to-blood contact when we're snorting cocaine. So that's another way to obtain it. Tattoos, again, using unclean equipment, you know, sharing the blood to blood products is a possibility. Uh, these are the main ways that one can obtain hepatitis C. What is fascinating about hepatitis C is what we've realized is patients who are most at risk for having hepatitis C are baby boomers. Baby boomers are are the folks who are born between 1945 and 1965? This patient population has three to four times uh, the risk of chronic hepatitis C. So I know you want to ask the question why, mm-hmm. and there's probably many reasons. Um, you know, there's a, you know the sexual revolutions of the 60s. There's a Vietnam War. There's multiple reasons that happen to put this generation potentially at risk. But what has happened uh, uh, recently is the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, came out with a recommendation that all baby boomers should have a one-time test for hepatitis C. What the goal of this recommendation is to remove the stigma from the testing. So instead of me ha- sitting down with a patient who is probably close to my parents' age, and having a very uncomfortable conversation about what have you been up to in the 1960s, all I have to do is say, you know, you're part of the baby boomer generation, there's a recommendation for hepatitis C um, screening, just like there's a recommendation for diabetes screening, for cholesterol screening, and the beauty of it that we can find more patients, and we can treat more patients.
0: (laughs) Right. And this is this is probably out of out of the diseases that you talked about. The one I think you hear the most of because it's more you know you're talking about that generation and and people that that in the later after the boomers maybe made, um, you know the we'll, we'll use tattoos as an example. I mean I think t- people that had tattoos in the in the '80s and '90s just weren't conscious about oh wait no it all needs to be cleaned and new just because it wasn't you know you didn't hear about things you know and i think you the hiv virus probably paid into a lot of that um then but from my understanding and correct me if i'm wrong there you do there is a cure for c
1: there is absolutely a cure and this is the rationale behind the cdc recommendation because before before we had the cure there is no point in testing people, right? We can, test, we can test them. We can give them this life-altering, potentially life-threatening diagnosis, mm-hmm. but there's not much that we can do for them. So approximately five years ago, there has been a true revolution in hepatitis C care. We can now cure hepatitis C. And I'm not talking about putting patients in remission, making the virus suppressed. It's a true cure. It will be gone and it will not come back unless you become reinfected. The treatment is gotten also a lot easier compared to what it used to be. Um, Before, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, we used interferon, which came as a shot and made you feel like you have a flu. And that went on for about six to 12 months with very low percentages of cure. If you achieve 40% chance of cure, you know, you're pretty lucky. Nowadays, most patients can be treated with one pill a day with very minimal side effects for three months with close to a 95% chance for cure. That's amazing. That is amazing. This really revolutionized my practice and um, this is the first chronic disease that we can truly cure.
0: Yeah. And so are you, are you seeing more um, of the population come in for the testing knowing now that there's a cure? Because I know there's a you know, especially in the older generation, it's like, if there's something wrong, I just don't know what it is type attitude. And I hear that from my, from my parents sometimes. Well, I'm fine. I feel fine. But, you know, so I, I, you know, do you see more of the boomers coming in and wanting the test or being okay with the test now that they know there's a cure?
1: Uh, We are very slowly getting there. I think uh, even a lot of the physicians aren't fully aware that the hepatitis C cure is out there, let alone the patients. So part of, you know, really my mission here is to spread awareness that first of all, the baby boomers are at risk and should be tested. And second of all, there is a very easily achievable cure. So we are definitely not there in terms of patients being aware and patients, you know, coming out of the woodwork and seeking uh, testing and cure, but we're working on it.
0: Well, and, it, and it's probably twice as hard when some of the, you don't see some of the symptoms until, you know, you're, you're like you were saying, your eyes are yellow or, or you see something visible. So, um, you know, so should a... Uh, boomers start with their primary care doctor and be asking them that question, you know, hey, should I be tested for this hepatitis, you know. Absolutely, C? Okay.
1: absolutely. The baby boomers should definitely bring it up to their primary care provider. The primary care provider, uh they do a wonderful job, but they deal with 20 different problems right right. right? so if this is on your list of things to do please bring it up to your primary care doctor have be tested and then you know we'll know whether or not you have the virus and we will be able to offer you the chance for cure is the is the test a a blood test simple blood test it's a simple blood test the first test is a screening test we look for an antibody Um, antibody is kind of like a footsteps of the virus in the blood it has been there so if the footsteps have been there, there's a second step. Um, uh, again, it's a blood test. And in this case, we actually look for actual viral particles in the blood. Okay. So about 15 to 20% of the patients will have the footsteps, but no virus. Oh, okay. They would have cleared the virus spontaneously.
0: Just lucky. Just exactly. Lucky. OK, so, what, so now hepatitis B, what is the, what is the difference between the, that and the hepatitis C?
1: Great question. Hepatitis B, again, is a virus. Hepatitis B uh, has similar modes of transmission. It can be transmitted blood to blood. Um, It can be also transmitted sexually via unprotected sexual intercourse. And the most important mode of transmission for hepatitis B is something called vertical transmission. Vertical transmission means that the virus is passed from the mom to the baby during pregnancy or delivery process. Okay. And uh, hepatitis B is very common in Asia, and the vertical transmission is what perpetuates uh, you know, the, um, the epidemic of hepatitis B, especially in Asia. Um, here in Fresno, we have very large um, Asian populations, right? We have the Hmong community, we have the Vietnamese, we have the Laotians, and um, those folks are at risk for harboring this hepatitis B probably from birth, and they don't know about it. Again, over time, the virus will cause damage to the liver, The difference between the hepatitis B and the hepatitis C is with hepatitis B at this point, we cannot achieve cure. We can't cure it, but we can very effectively control it. What the studies have shown is if we can suppress the virus, basically make it undetectable in the blood, your risk for development of liver cirrhosis or liver cancer goes down very significantly. The downside is you're on medication for life or until we find the cure for hepatitis B.
0: Okay. So you bring up a a point when you talk about somebody that has hepatitis B and it's suppressed, but does it, does it, I don't know if manifest is the right word, does it um, transition into cirrhosis or cancer all the time? Or is it just, once again, a bad luck type of thing?
1: Uh, not all hepatitis B leads to chronic liver disease and liver cancer. The trick is we don't necessarily know in which individuals this progression will happen and which and w- in which it will not happen. What we do know is the longer you've had the virus, uh, the higher your chances are for progression of disease and most importantly for liver cancer. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. So the next one you talked about, which I have questions in this one is as well as is the alcohol the liver disease and you talk about some of that once again the liver regenerates itself so if you if you you know are a heavy drinker now is that the case too of somebody that's just drinking once in a while you give your body a break your liver is going to regenerate every single time so basically if you if you do show signs of liver disease with alcohol that's fixable that's fixable by just cutting alcohol out of your diet
1: um, uh, yes and no. Uh, we, when we look at the liver damage, right, the damage occurs probably over years, right? When we're, when we're starting to see the symptoms of liver disease, you're on the tail end of probably 10, 20, 30 years of alcohol abuse, mm-hmm. right? So the scarring has occurred. And now at the very tail end, you have the symptoms. If you stop drinking, your symptoms may abate, your symptoms may get better, but you're not necessarily going to reverse the liver damage over the previous you know ten twenty years okay. of drinking, okay, so you may get better, but I certainly wouldn't encourage somebody you know to practice that repeatedly right yeah.
0: we'll stop for a couple of weeks then we'll start back up <laughs> yeah that. so you know the the fatty liver disease is is an area that for the most part is preventable, and we know that. In the entire United States, we have an obesity issue, and every single physician I've brought into this room is diet and exercise, care for yourself, good night's sleep. I mean, they all. It doesn't matter if I'm talking about your your skin or if I'm talking about your your joints, your liver, you know, your urinary tract. I mean, it's all. You have to have a healthy diet, and we know that that this is an issue here. When you see patients that that have been diagnosed with fatty liver immediately you're changing their diet you're changing their their regimen of uh, you know adding exercise into it is is there other things that that they can do want to prevent it or to reverse it again
1: absolutely and uh, the problem with fatty liver disease unlike for example hepatitis C fatty liver disease is a disease of lifestyle right So there are so many different things that contribute to the development of fatty liver disease that it's going to be very hard to cure that with just one pill. So like you said, lifestyle modifications is definitely is one of the key issues. But I want us to kind of step back and understand a little bit more uh, why do we have such a problem here in Central Valley with fatty liver disease? We are truly an epicenter of uh, fatty liver disease in the United States. There's a few things that go into it. One is genetic predisposition. Uh, We have a large Hispanic population here, and uh, Hispanic folks uh, have a certain uh, genetic difference that predisposes them to develop fatty liver disease even at a lower weight um, than a non-Hispanic patient. So this is, you know, problem number one. Problem number two is a lot of the patients um, that we see here may not necessarily have the access to fresh fruits and vegetables, healthy diet, and this really starts from childhood, right? A lot of the patients that I see, their mom and dad is working, you know, several jobs, you know, their dinner is McDonald's at the best, candy bar at the worst. So this is a, you know, a socioeconomic reason for uh, fatty liver disease, the, um, the next problem that contributes to liver disease is, you know, a good amount of alcohol consumption that we see here in Central Valley. And whenever you combine two liver diseases, be it fatty liver disease and alcohol, be it alcohol and hepatitis C, we're going to see a more severe and more rapidly progressive liver disease. So, you know, now that we've looked at it, certain risk factors are not modifiable, right? You cannot change who you are genetically. It is what it is. But certainly lifestyle um, is potentially modifiable, but it's hard to do, right? Again, I run against the barriers of my patients working several jobs. They don't have time to shop for fresh vegetables. They don't have time to cook fresh vegetables. So, you know, I do the best I can with them. I have them cut out soda, right? This is an easy one, a no-brainer. I have them eat a healthy breakfast that starts up your metabolism rather than have them starving until the lunchtime. Uh, And my favorite intervention is actually cutting your portion size in half. Wherever you are, be it in McDonald's, the Burger King, or at home, you simply cut your food in half. You give, give the second half to your friend, you send back to the kitchen, you take it home with you. But this is a very effective way of cutting back on the calories that you're consuming. And uh, the last but not least part of the lifestyle modification is physical activity. We cannot lose weight and become healthier um, if we don't exercise. We aim for 30, to 30, 40, for 30 to 40 minutes of cardiovascular activity three to four times a day. And when I mean cardiovascular activity, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Walking is a cardiovascular activity. When you do walk, however, you do need to be sweating, and you do need to have your heart rate up. So it's not a leisurely stroll. It's actually an exercise.
0: So, you know, that's great advice for someone that should be changing their lifestyle. But I want to talk a little bit about the, the genetic that you're seeing? What do you tell somebody that is fairly thin, eats well, exercised, but they've just, they genetically, they have fatty liver disease?
1: So this is a really good question. There's something called uh, the um, skinny fatty liver disease. So the academic name for fatty liver disease is NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So we we have something called skinny NASH. And it happens uh, a lot of the times in Asian folks. Um, it, we do see it in the Hispanic folks. So what, where do we go from here? And this is really where the next wave of um, uh, scientific discoveries is, go- is gonna come from. Those type of people, as well as people who are heavy and uh, have metabolic syndrome issues, will likely need medication to help with management of fatty liver over time. And uh, since we found the cure for hepatitis C, all the scientists who have been studying, they looking for the cure for hepatitis C, and now have switched to studying fatty liver disease and to studying hepatitis B. So what we have now is multiple compounds that have a potential to become medications for fatty liver disease in the future, and we're studying them in clinical trials. Now, there is, uh, when we talk about clinical trials, there's three phases of clinical trials. Phase one we test it on a small group of patients, we make sure this drug or potential drug is safe. Phase two trial, we test it on a larger group of people to make sure that it's safe, again, and to make sure that it works. Phase three is we know that it's safe, we know that it works, and we are studying it in a larger group of people and here at UCSF Fresno we actually have several of those clinical trials ongoing phase 3 clinical trials that are looking at the potential medications that uh will help patients in the future so oftentimes when i see patients you know in whom lifestyle uh modifications aren't working aren't helpful or they aren't you know um at metabolic risk to begin with i will try to funnel them into those clinical trials
0: that's great and we actually had we did a podcast um not too long ago about clinical trials and how they work and you know so if there is somebody that's interested you know listen to that podcast as well um so let's go back to you know the individuals that that have been diagnosed or that the doc- their doctor primary care doctor has referred them to you you're um for whatever reason they're coming in you're you're able to um do you know kind of the history find out what type of uh, liver disease they have and help them with these trials true that's correct and um and are all trials the same where if you're a part of the trial, they cover the cost of the medication. You know that's pretty standard with all trials. That, that
1: is very okay. standard. Uh-huh. You know, so
0: that's something to keep in mind too. Even going back up to, you know, just that boomer not sure they want to be tested. You know, come start with you, and you know, you never know. You could you could be, you could have some fatty liver disease as well, and and starting with you would be the the best way to do it. So sci- uh, cirrhosis is another one. So is cirrhosis. A, a, I've just always envision the alcohol liver disease as cirrhosis of the
1: liver. Those, those are the same. And that's a very common misconception. Okay. What, <laughs> um, what, what cirrhosis is, mm-hmm. is hardening of the liver because of scar tissue. And all the diseases we've, we've talked about, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, fatty liver disease, alcohol, everything has the most common end, which is cirrhosis. Okay. So, and I see this a lot in my patients who come and see me and tell them you have cirrhosis. And they say, but doctor, I don't drink, right? So I have to go through an explanation that there's many things that can lead to this end result, okay. which is cirrhosis.
0: Okay. That makes more sense. Then. <laughs> you know, you, you Google things, you figure them out sometimes, they're not always right. Okay, so I know um, you're you're fairly new to Fresno, correct? Yes. And it's you're such a great uh, value a resource to have here. And you know, one of the things that we were talking about earlier is, you know, when you get to a point where you, your liver is starting to, to break down or isn't viable anymore, th- there is transplants. And let's talk a little bit about liver transplants. Um, you hear about heart, you hear about kidney, and some of those are very long lists, very hard to, um, to get. You, you, you don't get to cut out a piece of your liver and it'll still function. You have to have a full liver. Therefore, you can't, like with a, a kidney, I can give you one kidney but, and I keep another. How do, what, is it, what does a patient look like when they're getting to that point where you don't think that their liver is going to recover or they're not going to continue living with the, the current liver they have?
1: So, these are really great questions. And first of all, um, liver transplant unfortunately faces a very long list. You know, it's similar to the other organ transplantations. The cool thing about the liver, remember, we talked earlier, then the liver can regenerate or rebuild itself. So you are actually able to donate a part of your liver to another person and your liver will grow back and another person with that piece of the liver will grow back enough liver to function. It's
0: fascinating. So
1: this is an amazing thing and it really allows many patients to have access to the, this life-saving therapy you know um, without having to be on a transplant list for months and years mm-hmm. sometimes. Wow. Um, It is done, however, you know, the standard liver transplant um, weight on the list is still um, how most patients get transplanted, but more and more transplant centers, including the um, University of California, San Francisco, does this, what we call living-related donations in where you can donate a part of your liver to a patient.
0: And that's usually through a relative? Or could it be anybody?
1: It does not have to be through a relative oh, okay. Yeah.
0: okay. So you know what what is your best recommendation for somebody that that that's probably another question. You talk about in the Hispanic population that it's a it's in their genet, genetic um, disease. Is that true for everybody? like if if one of my parents had some type of liver disease, would I be at risk for it? Is it
1: genetic? Mm -hmm. um some of liver disease and genetics i mean we've only touched you know the tip of the iceberg in terms of liver diseases Mm -hmm. we talked about the most common ones that i see here in central valley but there's a whole slew of diseases that are more rare that we haven't seen that may have a genetic component to them but it's not necessarily a genetic component you know if you're if your mom was overweight, developed fatty liver disease, but you're not overweight, and you're taking good care of yourself. There's no reason to think that you're going to end up in the same boat. Okay, mm-hmm.
0: you always have to worry about, you know, what your what your parents and your grandparents and things like that. So that's good to hear. So talk to me a little bit about um, l- uh, liver transplant. We don't currently do that here in Fresno, um, but as a UCSF um, Fresno extension or extension of UCSF Fresno, we do work with them closely if you do have patients. And then they, they come back and you're, they're under your care at that point, correct? Is that how that
1: works? So the way it works uh, right now, let's say uh, uh, a primary care provider identifies a patient uh, who has severe liver disease. They oftentimes refer them to a hepatologist, a specialist such as myself. Um, I will do the initial evaluation And uh, if uh, I believe that this patient is at the stage where a transplant is necessary and there's no obvious contraindication to transplant, then I will refer this patient to one of the transplant centers, um, such as uh, UCSF main campus. They will go to the main campus they will go through a very extensive evaluation. The evaluation wants to make sure that you can survive a big surgery, that the rest of you outside of your liver is healthy enough. We want to make sure that you're psychologically stable and able to go through the transplant, able to take medications and follow with doctor's appointments after the transplant. Um, And we want to make sure that there's good family support. So when all those things are vetted and everything matches up, then the patient is placed on a transplant list. Where they are on a transplant list is determined by how sick they are. We calculate a certain score called a MELD score. The higher the MELD score is, the higher you are on a transplant list. When you're high enough on a transplant list, and the liver, the organ becomes available that matches your body, then you will go through um, the transplantation surgery and you'll have your new liver. The, it's wonderful to have a new liver all of the symptoms such as confusion jaundice ascites goes away patients can return to their normal lives i've had patients who have had liver transplants for 15 20 years i've had a patient who had two babies after she's had a liver transplant but it comes at a cost of medication. You need to take medication to prevent your body from rejecting your liver, because it's not yours, right? So lifelong meticulous compliance with immunosuppression is the price that we pay for getting a brand new liver.
0: So, you know, people... That, that are diagnosed with liver disease, I mean, this is a long, you know, this is not something that's, you I know, mean, transplant's not normal. I mean, you're you're able to treat a majority of liver disease usually for their lifetime.
1: Ab- absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, uh, and again, the key uh, to avoiding the transplant is really early diagnosis, early referrals and appropriate treatment. If we can diagnose somebody with hepatitis C, you know, who has had a tattoo in their 20s, we can diagnose them in their 20s or in their 30s, we can prevent the liver disease forever. Mm -hmm. We will cure them. They will never have liver disease. If we can uh, diagnose a mom who is pregnant with hepatitis B, we can treat the mom and prevent transmission of the virus to the baby. Um, We can certainly work on uh, uh, lifestyle changes with children as well as adults um, and prevent fatty liver disease progressing to advanced liver disease. Transplant is probably 10% of uh, patients that I see, and uh, I see the sickest of the Mm sick. So this is by far not the norm and not the majority of the patients. Okay.
0: That's good to hear. And the thing is, is that you know, with C, they're secure. So why not be tested? You know, B is manageable. You know, the fatty liver disease, the alcohol liver, it's, it's all treatable and manageable. You just have to get checked out, exactly, get diagnosed, and and go to your doctor and ask ask that question. So, is there anything? You know, my last question is: is is there anything that people can do to better protect their liver? you know, outside of the, the food and um, the exercise. I mean, is it, are there people out there that just, it's unlucky. They just are gonna have cirrhosis or they're go, going to have, um, you know, kind of like the skinny the, the skinny gnash that you talked about. Is there anything else that they can do to, to keep a healthy liver?
1: So this is a really good question. Um, certainly um, minimizing alcohol, leaving a healthy lifestyle, all those things go towards protecting your liver. The one thing that I want to mention is vaccinations. So there is um, hepatitis A, which is an acute illness. This is yet another viral illness, but it's an acute illness. It doesn't transition into chronic liver disease. We have vaccination for that, and we have vaccination for hepatitis B. So right now, all babies that are born are automatically vaccinated for hepatitis B those of us who are older have not had um, their vaccines at birth. And in my opinion, um, all patients with liver disease, and probably realistically speaking, all patients, period, should be vaccinated for hepatitis A and B. It's a preventable disease. Why not prevent it? So so as an adult now, because I know you
0: mentioned the babies are, so as an adult, like for myself, potentially, I, I have never probably been vaccinated for A or B? Is that something I should be talking to my primary care doctor about?
1: Yes. This is something you can ask your primary care doctor. The primary care doctor will check a blood test to see if you already had the immunity. Um, hepatitis A can range from a mild flu-like illness to a devastating liver failure-type illness. So you may have already had hepatitis A and have no idea that mm-hmm. you've had it. So we're going to check and see if you have an antibody to it. If you do, then we're done. We don't need to vaccinate okay. you. But if you don't, it's a series of two shots for B, three shots, excuse me, two shots for A, three shots for B, or three shots combined if you need both and that will result in protection.
0: I have no idea if I've been vaccinated, so that's a really good question. Is there anything else I'm leaving out? I know there's a lot more you could talk about when it comes to, to liver disease, um, but I think this is a good start. But is there anything
1: important that you want um, me to... I want to mention one more thing. Okay. Um, in the past, the we relied heavily on liver biopsies to diagnose the extent of liver disease, how much scarring is in the liver disease. Uh, in the last few years, uh, we have had access to a new technology. Um, it's called transient elastography or fiber scan. Uh What that does is via a sound wave, that we can send through the liver, similar to ultrasound, it actually allows us to understand how much scarring or how much fibrosis in the liver without sticking a biopsy needle through it. So this is relevant for all the diseases we've talked about because the most important determinant of progression of liver disease is how much scarring you already have. So this is the first thing I do for the vast majority of the patients that I see in my office is I do this fiber scan test to figure out where you are in the continuum of liver disease. If you have no little scarring, I'm not going to worry about you as much. If you're on the other end, you have cirrhosis, you have severe scarring, I'm going to worry about you a lot more and treat you more aggressively. So that's a great tool that has become available to us in the last few years.
0: Yeah, this this area of medicine has really developed over the past couple of years because you know I talk to other doctors and we talk about the the medications and the things that can help patients, but there just hasn't been a lot of change. Yeah, you know, in decades yeah. on them. So that's that's fortunate. If someone wanted to um, get in touch with you as far as making an appointment, um, can you share where, where your office location is and then the the telephone number that they would call to make an appointment?
1: Um, absolutely, but I don't remember it off the top of my head. <laughs> That's okay. We can put it. We can put it on the on the
0: podcast <laughs> as well. But you're you're located. Your office is downtown. It's
1: it's uh, downtown on the community East, campus, East Medical East Plaza. East Medical
0: Plaza. Okay, <laughs> so most people in town will know where that is. It's. it's I'll it's,
1: leave you my card. Yeah. So we'll we'll
0: add that to. You. And anybody can always call the medical society too and get referrals for any of the physicians in town. But um, but the. The East Medical Plaza is located on the campus of Community Regional Medical Center. And the address is actually 2335 East Cashin Lane, and that's suite 260. And the telephone, um, the office number there is 326-1010. And that is for um, Dr. Reitman's office and the rest of um, the UCSF campus um, physicians, are a lot of them are located in that same building, so most people know where it is. Um with that, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. And I hope to have you back as soon and we can talk more go more into detail about some other
1: liver issues. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And there's certainly a lot more that we can discuss about liver. We'll
0: get you back for sure. Thank you.